We are not Shakespeare scholars. We have neither the education, resources, nor frankly the intelligence to engage with Shakespeare's work the way, say, anyone who's actually published a paper about Shakespeare does. We are amateurs, a point we've made explicitly clear many times on this podcast, and a point the podcast has made explicitly clear many, many more times over the last two years. Yet we're not completely uneducated on this topic. We did, after all, get English degrees. We learned how to research a topic, how to form a cohesive thesis, and even how to cite things in MLA format. We took a year-long class dedicated to Shakespeare and wrote many papers about his plays and poems. We have read important books by serious academics, and we may have even understood some of them. While no intellectual heavyweights, we have the undergraduate student's experience of cramming information into a brain very late at night in the hopes enough of it sticks around for the final exam the next day, only to find years later that some of it has in fact stuck around well after that point. With that being the extent of our academic achievement, it's fitting that this episode, devoted to the academic history of Shakespeare, followed the same form. Much like a paper completed 15 minutes before the submission deadline, we are sitting here essentially a day before the episode is due to be published, having just crammed a week's worth of quality research down into a few hours of cramming, resulting in a halfway complete final product. Is it the best we could do? No. Is it good enough? Well, you get to be the judge. If it's anything like our university days, we'll be happy with a B or, if we're very lucky, a B+. None of the names we're talking about today, though, are B-plus academics, and all of them have left some sort of important imprint on the study of Shakespeare as a writer. We'll take a historical stroll through the ages of Shakespeare scholarship, touching on some of the high points, the evolution of Shakespeare as a literary topic, and hopefully get a sense of how views on Shakespeare have changed over the centuries. Then we'll arrive in the present day, where viewpoints start to defy simple chronological categorization and become as diverse as any other topic in the internet era. After all, all it takes to say something about Shakespeare these days is a microphone and a half-baked opinion. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And we are the Vicks. Indeed we are. And this episode, as I just explained... Uh, in agonizing detail, is our episode devoted to uh, Shakespeare scholarship yeah. and uh, the academics of Shakespeare, the the history and everything about uh, the ivory tower. Of, of which maybe one day we will be part. I think you've sold us a little short sometimes. Mm-hmm. We have more than a half-baked opinion. It's, it's three-quarter baked. It's like you've had we a have... gummy, but you haven't had three gummies. Is this <laughs> no, what you're saying? Like no. you're on your higher THC count, but not at the full. Okay. Well, I mean, I I think I think I've oversold this actually, to Lindsay, but but that's okay. Uh, we yeah we we have enough that we understand the lay of the land, and that's well, and all this episode is really going to be. Yeah, for. and I think you know we we kind of again put down this topic several years ago when we were <laughs> plotting out the the podcast and. Um, didn't really have an idea of what we wanted to do until two weeks ago when we released our last episode on Pericles and we're like, well, so what are we going to talk about? And um, and it was only in the process of doing the research that we hit on kind of a central thesis, which is what Aiden explained in his intro essay. Um, and it really does follow kind of a an English 
literary literary um trajectory i guess yeah like we're going to be hitting on a couple of uh, a lot of the big um theories i guess yeah like deconstruction and new historicism and feminist theory and um all of that stuff which is stuff that any english student has covered and we're going to be talking about Ben Johnson and Weaver and Coleridge and a lot of the other, mm-hmm. you know, heavyweights from Shakespeare's day and age and a few years after that. Yeah. Um, also stuff that a standard English degree gives you access to. So, I mean, I think, I think, I, I still think you, you undersold our <laughs> contribution to this because again, like we are not trying to be deep heavyweight <laughs> scholars here. This is like, you know... An intro level uh, Shakespeare podcast. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's a yeah, survey it's, course. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? We're going to give you a little taste. It's going to be a little amuse-bouche <laughs> of the palette, the grand palette of Shakespeare scholarship. And yeah. then you will get to go away using the many, 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 many links that we will provide in our episode description um, to fill your belly mm-hmm. to continue the food metaphor. I guess I'm a little hungry. Yeah, apparently. Um, and like, let's start at the beginning then. Let's yeah. let's let's uh, take a taste of the <laughs> the contemporary response to Shakespeare. And I think that's um, something we've touched on a little bit is the fact that there is some uh, notation, notes, some some thoughts, some writings of what people thought of Shakespeare's Which plays and, and poetry as it came out. Kind of surprised me how much there mm-hmm. was. I kind of thought that. Like, even though we've talked about it and, and like, Ben Johnson's, you know, famous... Yeah, uh, yeah his ode. Ode to, ode <laughs> yeah, to the bard. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Sweet Swan of Avon. Yeah. Um, in the first folio, I didn't really think there was much, quote-unquote, scholarship about Shakespeare yeah. until, you know, the 18th century almost, yeah. or the 17th century. Because he kind of fell out of fashion for a little bit. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and, and we'll... Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get there yeah. too. Yeah, but um, let's let's start with one of the first uh, references mm-hmm. that is found uh, by a guy named Francis Mears, uh, M E R E S. Uh, so he was uh, also a, a writer and uh, a translator, and he was a contemporary of Shakespeare. He was only active for about the 1590s, late 1590s. Mm-hmm. Um, and his he has uh, he published a discourse about uh, English literature at the time. Um, and he spoke very favorably of Shakespeare and his plays. And it was kind of like the the sense you kind of get is that he was kind of speaking for, you know, the the the, the literary scene as a whole liked Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, uh, he said, the sweet, witty soul of Ovid lies in the mellifluous and honey-tongued Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, witness his Venus and Adonis, his Lucrece, his sugared sonnets among his private friends. So, I mean, this is actually one of the first references to the sonnets mm-hmm. uh, before they were actually published in, right. in 1609. So uh, this is a big historical document for saying, yes, the, the sonnets they were out existed, there and yeah, yeah and people were we're seeing them, reading them, uh, and they liked them. And uh, Mears was amongst those. Um, he's also notable, again, as a historical point for Shakespeare biographers. Um, uh, his references in the 1590s to a bunch of plays kind of t- confirms yeah. the timing of them. Uh, ones like Love's Labor's Lost, uh, Henry IV Part One, uh, all the other early comedies that we've already talked about. Um, and he also mentioned Love Labor's... Uh, no, Love Labor's one. I say yes. I meant Love Labor's Lost, but yeah. uh, he also mentioned one, so uh, that's another reference to the Lost play, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he also said Shakespeare was among the English the most excellent of both kinds, as i.e. 
comedy and tragedy uh, for the stage. So he was okay. he was very glowing, had a bunch of good things to say, uh, and this is kind of reinforcing the idea that uh, yeah, Shakespeare was popular <laughs> this time. It, it's not like he was just one of many. He was probably uh, you know. Uh, well respected <laughs> yeah he was yeah. probably cream in the crop at the time I think it's interesting that um, it's something we've touched on a lot and obviously people think of Shakespeare first and foremost today as a dramatist but um, Mears is talking about his poems and mm-hmm. the sonnets yeah. as kind of the first touch point um, in the early literary tradition of Shakespeare yeah. scholarship yeah. Um, so people at the time I think it's really important to remember that they thought of him as a poet first and a dramatist. Well, yeah. Maybe not even second. He was probably a business owner second yeah, and yeah, then a yeah, dramatist yeah. third. Well, we'll get to Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, uh, the idea that there were like, now we'd have separate, like you'd have your writers in one, in one school, mm-hmm. you'd have your dramatists or your theater kids in another school, and you'd have your academic uh, literary contextualists yeah. in a third school. And those were all the same people in this era. Like yeah. if you could read and write and you well, were interested in the theater or yeah. poetry, you were part of this very small milieu of the time. Yeah. And so everybody who was anybody had thoughts on Shakespeare most likely. And yeah. this is kind of evidence of it. And knowing that he was so popular, I think it's impossible that any Anybody would be able to be part of that milieu at yeah. the time and not comment on Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So knowing that he was at that time understood to be a poet, a dramatist, and to be good at both of those mm-hmm. things, um, you know, I don't think there's any hint in reading this. Just to, you know, give a little jab at the anti-Stratfordian crew, um, there's no hint that he's not who he claimed yeah, to be, yeah, right? Yeah, there's there's none of this kind of like, oh, Shakespeare, wink, wink. It's, right. It's, it was Bill, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know the guy the, the that guy got drunk that, at the pub and, yeah, yeah, you know. And complained about, you know, the, the taxes or whatever, right? And then it also was, happened to be, a, yeah. you know... An annoyingly good poet. <laughs> exactly. If uh, you're Ben Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, we'll get there. <laughs> yes. uh, the second one I wanted to mention was John Weaver. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was kind of just another contemporary. Uh, and he wrote a sonnet in praise of Shakespeare. He wrote really? a whole book called Epigrams uh, of something, something, something. In 1599, it was published. Um, and it was, but he wrote a sonnet to Shakespeare in wow. praise of Shakespeare's use of the same format. So it was, it was very kind of like... Uh, if you loved Spielberg and then you made a short film called THX 1138. Or if you make an entire TV series about a boy who loves Spielberg <laughs> and call it Dawson's Creek. Oh, oh, okay. I was going to say J.J. Uh, Abrams' entire career. No, I it's Kevin Williamson. Okay. Kevin Williamson? Either way. Whatever. Off the topic of John Weaver. Yeah. Um, and again, just to quote some of the language he used, call them honey-tongued and sweet. Again. Again, honey-tongued. honey-tongued. Very, very much people loved his tongue, apparently. We're not going to get into that. Um, he also specifically called out Romeo and Richard for their ability to sway women uh, with Shakespeare's to words. To sway women? Yeah, to, to seduce women. I mean, Romeo got Juliet oh, with a few... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Not, I see. Yeah, I thought characters. you were talking about the plays. I'm like, the no. plays themselves are like oh, aphrodisiacs. Yeah. You go see Richard III and then, whew, there, were a lo- there was a baby boom after that <laughs> in London, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, had nothing to do with the Black Death. No. People trying to, you know. Um, yeah. Well, okay. That is that is interesting to have. Because um, when you think about it, Romeo and Richard do definitely have uh, a way with words. Yeah. So, yeah, to have that be remarked upon. Um, and the, amongst the early characters, especially, yeah. they're very noteworthy. I'd and say, they're still so. noteworthy. Yeah. So. yeah. 
Yeah. We're just like this. We're the same people, you know? <laughs> There's not much difference between us and the Elizabethans. All right. So moving on to Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson. Who proves that better than anybody. Uh, so he's, yeah, I think it's safe to say, Lindsay, if, I don't know if you agree, but probably the greatest contemporary of Shakespeare in terms of dramatists. I mean, you yeah, had, what's his name? Early Marlo, on. Marlo think, early yeah. on. If Marlo hadn't died. It might be more of a faked his death yes depending on which conspiracy theory you believe (laughs) he might have outshone Shakespeare as a a dramatist because he was quite talented (laughs) let's be real it's true Um, but I mean of those who did survive into the into the later years, yeah. especially the twenties, uh, which is when Johnson did a lot of you know the work on the folio and all that stuff that we've talked mm-hmm. about, um, he he had I would call it a complicated kind yeah. of understanding of and relationship call that. with yeah Shakespeare because he was he it's I mean his so he wrote. Uh, to the memory of my beloved, the mm-hmm. author William Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, and that's where we get a lot of the famous lines like "Thou had small Latin and less Greek" when yeah. he's talking about Shakespeare. And he was not of an age, but of all time, but for all time, like these are the these are the lines that uh, we now associate with Shakespeare and Johnson, kind of uh, sugaring him up. Mm-hmm. But the play also compares the, him the to, poem. The poem, sorry, also compares him to a prostitute yeah. uh, and or maybe as a brothel owner as opposed like it's 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 very kind of like tongue-in-cheek praising but also honest praising i've kind of called it in my notes here a compliment sandwich right okay so i i think that's kind of like you're really good understood. you're kind of a scoundrel but hey you're good you're good yeah. and i mean i'm obviously better right but you're okay you know it's it was it was competitive mm-hmm. kind of back and forth between the two of them but it was also uh um a positive kind of one-upmanship. Like, yeah. they, they, they were positive competitors, not in the sense that they wanted to drag each other down, but they wanted to elevate each other. But Yeah, it's not Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. It's <laughs> it's not, like, collaborators. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, yes. But yes. they but they maybe had um, a, a passive-aggressive rivalry, mm-hmm. maybe, is the yeah. way I get it. Like, I don't see it as being, like... It's sometimes painted as being a friendly rivalry between yeah. the two of them, but I think there was definitely some... Um, uh, bitterness maybe on the part of Johnson that you get so which is so interesting that he's the one whose poem to Shakespeare yeah. is featured so prominently <laughs> in talking about Shakespeare um, yeah. and, and like he is best known for doing that as opposed <laughs> to anything else he, he may have written yeah um, so you know a little Salieri Mozart yeah you yeah know? kind I of don't feel know. yeah um, um, but yeah I mean and I mean so his praise if you take it at face value and it's positive, mm-hmm. it is the stuff that's kind of passed on down the age. He compares him to all the other classical poets and yeah. says, yeah, you're, you're just as good, if not better than all those guys. And yeah. uh, that's kind of the view that we've kind of inherited of Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, I think if Johnson was doing it semi-ironically, like, yeah, oh yeah, he was the best. Like, he was the best. Like, mm-hmm. you can't see any uh, audience, but I'm giving like, an, okay, yeah, okay, in air quotes, he was the absolute best. You know, if it was a bit more ironic uh, praise, mm-hmm. that didn't translate down the years. We, right. we kind of picked and, and borrowed uh, the key phrases to uh, immortalize Shakespeare and play down any... Thank you, Bardolatry, for, mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, moving into the 17th century, we've mm-hmm. got John Dryden, another... Um, famous yeah he was the first poet laureate yeah, remember, which, right? is, yeah which is yeah. kind of amazing yeah. um so 
there the time period that, that this is what I was alluding to earlier, this time period was um, kind of, well, not kind of, very critical of Shakespeare. It was an outmoded, old-fashioned yeah. um, tradition that Shakespeare was writing in. And the the 16th century, sorry, 17th century um, restoration. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so after the Civil War, after the English yeah. Civil War, you've got um, restoration drama and um, the kind of, modes that people were writing in very very different drawing room comedies and mm-hmm. that kind of thing which are um more um merry wives of windsor yeah, and yeah, less we richard the third yes, you know yeah. they're not grand operatic tragedies anymore you're dealing with you know average people and fops and you know all these these caricatures that um you know, we look at as being kind of quaint and Shakespeare yeah. is upheld as the... Yeah. But they looked at Shakespeare kind of unfavorably and John Dryden fits into that. He he was um, not necessarily his biggest fan. No, I, I think... Yeah, I think he, he viewed uh, Shakespeare... And this is like right after the plays. Like the plays obviously didn't happen at all during the Puritan phase. Yeah, no. And then during the Revolution, there wasn't much of it. So Shakespeare died out in that era and yeah. uh, he did come a little bit back into Dryden's era and that's when mm-hmm. this kind of criticism arrives. Um and he thought, especially the use of language in particular, like the the, the style of Shakespeare's blank verse, yeah. uh, was not in keeping with real poetry and real rhyming couplets. Yeah, is where it was, it's exactly. It was yes. all rhyming couplets, and if you didn't do that all the time, which is funny because now again we view, you know, in to some extent, like the the areas where Shakespeare does use rhyming couplets is being kind of hokey hokey and just Hallmark like card. yeah, and just yeah. like wedged in yeah. amidst all the. Uh, the variability that he has that he's yeah that he has for yeah. everything else so again it was very much of the time um and he also hated the the romances which which i think is so funny because it's like those are some of the most creative things that shakespeare did they don't fit into that tradition that you could easily criticize that shakespeare and elizabethan drama is kind of this bridge between you know the medieval um, mm-hmm. plays that like the traveling plays and yeah. masks and stuff that you would have to the more um, I don't know what I'd call it but the the restoration stuff that Dryden is talking about yeah. um, so it's like it's totally maybe that's why it's not in fashion like it it Pericles is kind of improbable you've got Diana coming yeah. down and and yeah. and, and, and yeah. Uh, Perdita comes back to life and yeah. maybe or maybe she yeah. was never dead to begin yeah. with in the winter's tale and um, there's all kinds of magic realism going on there before magic realism was a thing and so I kind of maybe I kind of get it that they're critical of that but yeah. I think that is what makes those plays I'm just a big fan of the romances <laughs> yeah we, we've talked about that Dryden and I would have to we'd be fighting it <laughs> you'd out you'd have to throw it down it of course yeah. you being a woman he wouldn't even deign to talk to you but uh, <laughs> like there's yeah just like a it's interesting that this is like it's so closely matches like as we go through and we'll mm-hmm. see this in the next one even but uh you know as shakespeare kind of gets canonized mm-hmm. uh he becomes a little more untouchable yeah um or only touchable and criticizable through the particular lens of the timescape yeah. so like dryden is already on it for like a, a number of reasons because yeah. It stylistically didn't fit with anything. But as uh, we move into Alexander Pope in yeah. the 18th century, where Shakespeare's kind of already getting turned into the great English poet, mm-hmm. not maybe the greatest poem of poet or uh, playwright of all time yet, but amongst the English language, mm-hmm. he's he's top dog. Um, and so 
his criticisms are a little more narrow than Dryden's were. Dryden had problems with all sorts of aspects of it. Um, here he criticizes him for being a slave to the common populace yeah. of the day. Shakespeare was an absolute genius and he could do no wrong, but he was just writing for the wrong audience. Yeah. Like He wasn't writing for the literati cl- crowd that uh, Pope himself was a member of, right. and which obviously, again, uh, everybody who's anybody who matters is which in this crowd. didn't exist before the enlightenment anyway <laughs> enlightenment i said enlightenment wrong i would not be part of the enlightenment um Again, a woman, so. <laughs> oh. sorry <laughs> but yeah like this this idea of like the the english renaissance was kicked off by Shakespeare. yeah yeah like the literati didn't exist you yeah. you if you didn't write for the common people, you didn't write at all, you know, mm-hmm. unless you were passing around your poems in yeah. the halls of Westminster or something <laughs> like that's really your only audience. Yeah. So uh, I find Pope's criticism to be a little, but, but as with all of these guys, I mean, they're, they're coming at it, like you said, from a very, uh, I don't want to say a narrow lens, but it's like the lens of their time. Yeah. And they're still a little close to like this is only a hundred years after Shakespeare died so I mean we're not it's like us talking about James Joyce right yeah. there's a lack of a broader context maybe that um, yeah. is is you start to see yeah. a little more nuance maybe yeah. in um, modern day criticism of Shakespeare but you also have that influence of this canonization that Pope is already kind of participating in yeah. and you know you hear him uh, in 1725, his collected works containing, yeah. you know, high praise. He's the uh, pure inspiration. He doesn't yeah. need that was my source material. Part. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, uh, do you like they did no research? Yeah, <laughs> it was just yeah. like literally, like, oh yeah, Shakespeare came up with yeah. all these he stories, pulled all by it himself. from the heavens, yeah. and like, no, no, every single one he ripped off almost everything. There one was of his hardly plays. anything original about what Shakespeare was doing, <laughs> but it was but fan fiction, yeah, right? basically, and and but I mean, he also praised him for like uh, his ability to master the emotion mm-hmm. and reason, and he brought everything together on the stage and, yeah. and created something incredible, um, and it was. Uh, you know, again, it is it is a focus on his timeline and mm-hmm. his his focus uh, or the focus of the crowd that he exists in, which is very Pure insular. Yeah, exactly. Yes, very <laughs> enlightenment philosophical. Focused, right? So yeah. it is. Um, yeah, Pope's interesting that way because he was one of the kind of early uh, Shakespeare's awesome crowd, mm-hmm. um, and we haven't yet got into the historical. Uh, context phase where they really started looking at, at yeah. some of this stuff uh, in more depth. Samuel Johnson. I think this is an interesting one because um, we don't think about Shakespeare's works being collected aside from the folio, which is literally just we're going to print the text and that's it. Uh, Johnson um, kind of provides some annotations, some yeah. textual notes that go along one. with it. The first one to do yeah. that. So, um, when you're adapting a play or when you're putting on a play or you're uh, reading a play, I don't know how many people actually sat down and just read the plays yeah. for fun. Um, you were using just the text and, and then your interpretation was up to the intelligence of the producer, the intelligence of the director. There wasn't really any, um, there there weren't any annotations provided. And, yeah. t- and uh, Johnson well, does this for yeah. the first time ever. Yeah, and it's it's groundbreaking because, I mean, now, I mean, he was, again, only 150 years. This yeah. was 1765 when he, he published his plays. Um, 
that's only 150 years after the fact. So the language wouldn't have evolved nearly as much as it has between then and now, course, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, he's working much closer to the source material. But even then, I mean, there were words that would have dropped out mm-hmm. of use already uh, or they, their meaning would have changed and stuff like, stuff like that. So if you don't have someone go back and try and annotate it and fully express or help the reader in whatever use, whether they're going to be putting on the play or yeah. they are just reading it, to really understand all the language and everything. Yeah. Uh, that's the the idea that you didn't you had to do that. Uh, really yeah. started with Johnson, and that's 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 a big big step forward. And I wonder how um, this is something I, I didn't find. I don't know if you came across it in your research, but um, how much of modern day uh, literary scholarship of Shakespeare um, is indebted to the work that Samuel Johnson mm. did. Um, like, if it hadn't been Johnson, I'm sure somebody else would have come along and yeah. done that, right? And annotated yeah. Shakespeare, yeah. done some textual analysis of, of the work. But, um, but yeah, it just seems like this is... It's... Now there's a lot of... It's very... Um, it seems to be very concrete. Like, we know that this archaic word means that. Yeah. And this is what it was referencing. Yeah. Um, so... I don't think that it's kind of the, it's not the field that it was when obviously yeah, Johnson yeah. was doing it yeah. and kind of inventing it yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but you have to wonder how much of it is, yeah, how much of it is indebted. I would like, I would like to find out. Yeah, that. no, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'm sure this thing's still available, so we could probably. Yeah, it, it would be, it would be really cool to read it and just yeah. see kind of how. What what did he think these words meant? And yeah, what did yeah. he think this was referencing? Yeah, and, and did he cite his sources? You know, like yeah. like honestly, it's in it's MLA form. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other thing about Johnson Quick was yeah. uh, he did have uh, in his intro to his text, um, he described the quality of Shakespeare, or um, I guess the quality of any piece of art or literature or text. I don't know exactly what the context of this quote was, but he said, no other test can be applied than the length of duration and continuance of esteem. <laughs> it's all about how long do people love the stuff right. that you put out? And he was saying this in 1765, thinking that, oh yeah, well, Shakespeare's already from the distant past and, yes. you know, we still love him because he's so great. Therefore, he must be great. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's funny that... That that's the one thing about uh, quality of art that I find does ring true for me personally is if it stays popular for a long time, it's probably got some some merit to it. If well, it can last through multiple generations and people can look at it and take uh, something meaningful yeah. out of it, yeah, I think, I think that's that's, that's probably a good uh, the the universality of it. I think is is what um, yeah, stands the test too. of time, yeah. right? Yeah. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. So moving on to the 19th century, uh, these are generally considered the romantics, Mm -hmm. but the 19th century is kind of a murky uh, cutoff point anyways. But uh, we'll start with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I I really like that you have as the first note under Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He's the rhyme of the ancient mariner dude. Yeah, because I forgot. I was like, that name. Oh my God. That name. And I was reading the article. I'm like, I got to look up what you went. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Apparently he was an opium addict for most of his life. Everybody was an opium addict. They were were all on opium. It was the thing to do. They were romantics. (laughs) 
what they did. I guess. Uh, he's, in terms of his Shakespeare uh, commentary, yeah. uh, he, it mostly came in the form of a bunch of lectures he did from 1809 to 1819. Wow. Prime Napoleon years I have in here for some reason. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm just listening to a podcast about the Napoleon. Anyway, sorry. That was just in my brain. Um, <laughs> so he's, and he focused a lot on uh, a handful of plays, especially yeah. the, the big tragedies uh, like Lear. Um, but he hated measure for measure. Really? And I, I love this quote, so I'm just going to read it okay. all. Uh, this play, which is Shakespeare's throughout, which is Shakespeare's throughout, is to me the most painful, say rather the only painful part of his genuine works. Oh my God. The comic and tragic parts, the one disgusting, the other horrible, and the pardon and marriage of Angelo not merely baffles the strong indignant claim of justice for cruelty with lust and damnable baseness cannot be forgiven because we cannot conceive them as being morally repentative. But it is likewise degrading to the mm. character of woman. Mm. So it it's getting into this early Vic, proto-Victorian moralism right. about women, yeah. about uh, chastity, and uh, about justice. justice. Yeah. And it's and it's so, so clear that this is like the laying the groundwork for that mm-hmm. um, obsession. And it's uh, yeah, and it's it's funny which play, again, falls out of favor. You know, right. Lear yeah. and it's it's about filial piety and and fathers know best and yeah. uh, bad Children choices. Children has to and, fall in line. Yeah, and, and stuff yeah. makes total sense. Loves loves that stuff. Yeah. Uh, measure you, for measure, measure, where it's a little bit murky. murky and, yes. Yeah. And it's like the that's good not... and the bad are all mixed together, and and there's forgiveness as yeah. a key thing. The Victorians were not forgiving. They were terrible Christians. We just <laughs> we had a discussion about uh, Christianity earlier today, but uh, it's. It, yeah, it's it's very telling again yeah. of, of what play they, they really focus on. Um, I like that uh, Coleridge also focused on Shakespeare's works as literary works, yeah. um, which is kind of the um, the invoke thing to do for Shakespeare mm-hmm. throughout the 1800s. Yeah. Um, people, and you start to see this in American scholarship around Shakespeare, and and even commentary by like. Um, Mark Twain yeah, and stuff Twain like that, stuff, yeah. uh, talking about Shakespeare as a, uh, you know, his works as a work work of literature, mm-hmm. right? Which is um, not like it's it's never been done before, but it's just it reaches new heights, I guess, in the nineteenth yeah. century. Well, again, yeah, that because that literati crowd has yeah. grown. I mean, literacy generally, and yeah. especially in America and, and England, is growing quickly. So yeah. uh, there's more people partaking in it, and it is starting to be used as a text mm-hmm. on its own without needing to be a play. There's also this interesting idea that um, that Shakespeare is kind of outside of the yeah. bounds of traditional drama and mm-hmm. this is focusing on the plays but the the earlier criticisms that were levied against Shakespeare for not adhering to the quote unquote classical unities and mm-hmm. things like that and for for deviating from what was expected of um theatrical yeah. productions at yeah. the time um this is like Coleridge is really the first I think or at least it, it it's the early. It's one of the earliest instances where people are saying um, Shakespeare doesn't have to follow that. But he's so great; he can stand on his own, and he can invent like his own yeah. theatrical tradition, yeah. um, which is kind of what happens. Yeah, like, it's they, true. like we talk about things being Shakespearean yeah. um, without reference to classics or without reference yeah. to, to even Elizabethan theater. Like yeah. Shakespearean is a separate adjective yeah. apart from Elizabethan. Um, when we talk about drama. And so, yeah, this is the first kind of admission that this is an okay thing almost, mm-hmm. that Shakespeare is allowed to do this. And again, it's it's part of that canonization and 
it's, I think, not a, co- a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Or it is a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. What am I saying? <laughs> that this is, the you know, right before the rise of, of Bardolatry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And where people yeah. start to hold him up as, like, the paragon, right? Mm-hmm. This is what everybody needs to, you know... Uh, reach for this yes is the, the ultimate end goal well right? and that and that's something I, we didn't take many notes about it but mm-hmm. that in the 19th century is when that happens yeah and that, that is the general push and another character that we didn't i didn't even think of until just now is yeah. dickens you know dickens yeah, loves shakespeare yeah. you know like it this the 19th century really was the invention of bardolatry it was also you know it ties in with the uh nationalism of the british empire mm-hmm. and the needs a national poet the height that, of their colonial powers, powers yeah and, and, and they are literally spread all over the world and this yeah. is when shakespeare moves from being a great english poet to, to being the world, the world the great yeah, poet the human poet yeah, right yeah yeah and it 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 does match with with a lot of that um and yeah i mean the 18th or the 19th century is is a hodgepodge of different movements and Mm -hmm. i mean there's there's all the social dynamics at play there's the 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 literary criticism aspects didn't really expand much beyond that because Mm -hmm. europe as a whole um well they were there was no europe as a whole really everybody was kind of like yeah i mean they're separate insular kingdoms and everything to to an extent but i mean like like we do have some notes on goth Goethe. Goethe. Goethe? Yeah, that's Jesus. better. I don't know, Lindsay. I don't speak the German. Uh, but, you know, he was exposed to Shakespeare uh, in the 1700s, 1771, yeah. I think. Um, he wrote two essays about Shakespeare, yeah. uh, one in that year and one later in 1815. And both times they were just full of praise for Shakespeare. He called them, you know, Germans, Germany's national poet kind of thing. Like that was the, uh, the sense in Germany was that Shakespeare was just a... Uh, a poet for all time and, and place, right? Yeah. And so that's feeding into the 19th century stuff. The fact that he is starting that. to be exported. Um, they do start teaching him in America mm-hmm. in this time. Mm-hmm. Twain has comments. You know, like there there is a whole groundswell of uh, because of the power and reach of, of Great Britain yeah. uh, and Shakespeare as, as a cultural icon within yeah. that. It does get spread all over the place. Yeah. It's it's the origin of uh, Indian uh, students learning Shakespeare and right. African students and everywhere where, you yes. know, the, the the sun was not setting on <laughs> was where Shakespeare was being taught. And it's right. it is uh, it's done a lot of I, I won't say damage, but it's done a lot of the base building for the modern understanding of Shakespeare is done yes. in this 19th century. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And um yeah, the, the idea of translations, which we'll get to, I think I have some um, interesting stuff about translations when we get to Latin American mm-hmm. ideas about Shakespeare. Um, Germany was the first country outside of England to have a translation in their own language yeah. in the 1770s. And I yeah. think um, it was only the first time it was translated in Africa was in um, into Arabic in, mm. Mm, I'll tell you right now. 1884, so about 100 years after that. Yeah. But um, so it, like starting to spread out, but the the idea of translating Shakespeare also has some interesting, uh, yeah. which we'll talk about too. But um, yeah, so you're right. I guess, I guess that, that is a good point that um, Great Britain being such a dominant force mm-hmm. in global politics yeah. at the time, even though it's not global politics as we understand it today, there was no... Um, well, but it, it was. It was the early part of that. Yeah, I guess. And, but yeah. it was still very colonial. Like, I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. Amongst the colonial powers, obviously, 
Britain was was number one. Yeah. So, uh, and and yeah, and then the cultural ties with America, which was you know the mm-hmm. second great upcoming power, right? Yeah. So like, um, uh, yeah, and it just it it's when it was cemented that Shakespeare was the guy, mm-hmm. uh, the at the top of the canon, mm-hmm. and that's continued. And mm-hmm. I mean, we've just kind of. I don't think I, I wouldn't say we haven't questioned it. I think people are questioning the canon oh, much yeah. more oh, for sure. since the '60s, especially. Yeah. Um, but it, it, he remains in that place, uh, and mm-hmm. it's. I think a lot of it is due to guys like Dickens and yeah. the 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 guy I forget his name who set up the first Shakespeare uh, event in Stratford. Oh, um, oh I David Garrick. David Garrick. There's the one. And that was 1769. Yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, that one was a failure. So yes, but the yeah. whole uh, effort to uh, canonize and, yeah. and set up Shakespeare was yeah. was in that was in that era. Yeah, so. he's never really fallen out of favor after that point. In in, yeah. in some of his plays, as we've yes, talked about, yes. have fallen out of favor, obviously, um, or have faced more criticism than others, or favored more than others. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, Shakespeare has remained kind of on top ever since then. Yep. So moving on to uh, the the kind of twentieth centuries when things start. You can't, they don't do quite chronologically, but mm-hmm. early on, uh, there was more of a movement towards a historical context. So people wanted to know a little bit more about what was life like in Elizabethan times and right. how, how, how would the Elizabethan audience have understood things. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, there's kind of three names that came up uh, in our <laughs> limited searching. Uh, but Edward Dowden was kind of, uh, he was an Irish academic, actually. Um, so he was the first one to really do a major examination of Shakespeare's right. plays within within a context. Um, he wrote Shakespeare, A Critical Study of His Mind and Art in mm-hmm. 1875. He also did like a layman's version uh, for, for lesser educated audiences in 1877. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really focused on like, okay, well, what was life like in... Uh, Elizabethan times uh, what was Shakespeare doing what was you know providing a bit more of that stuff that we now take mm-hmm. for granted it's probably I didn't look into this too deep but it would probably be similar to what the uh, the spiel you give kids when you're kind of explaining the right. the Shakespearean uh, worldview right yeah yeah so exactly. so yeah so that that's that's kind of one avenue um, then on the other side there was kind of a pushback against that and uh, AC Bradley might be one of the higher uh, well-known ones but he was kind of more of a Let's not look at the context at all. Let's just focus on uh, the text only. So he was mm-hmm. kind of following in the uh, Victorian sense of like, let's really dig deep into the text, but in a more rigorous kind of uh, atmosphere around this. Um, so he he released a book that was basically a translation of his lectures um, that were only focused on the four big tragedies, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, and Lear. Yeah. Um, and yeah, his focus was just on that. Uh, so it was kind of a pushback against the historical thing. And then there was a good a pushback against him by uh, Elmer Edgar Stoll. Um, who, Great name. It is. I mean, some of these British academics, just, you can't beat them. <laughs> um, but he directly tried to refute uh, Bradley and focus on the dramatic conventions of the time. So of, his, the of the Elizabethan time. Of the Elizabethan yeah, okay. time, yeah. So yeah. he was really um, trying to avoid uh, like a psychological analysis yeah. or a... Uh, textual analysis it was really just focused on okay well these plays were meant to be shown and displayed so let's talk about what that his that context was like so um i think he did a bunch of research into the globe and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um so it was really kind of building out this historical uh dramatic context for things which is yeah i think it's interesting um the this the extremes that you were talking about like someone who's going to focus entirely on like the historical context i'm sure this was around the time that there was, you know, um, 
I think it was a little bit after the discovery of, you know, some archaeological artifacts and stuff mm-hmm. that uh, in Stratford-upon-Avon and like the the Catholic potentially his Shakespeare's father was a secret yeah, Catholic yeah, in the rafters stuff, yeah. of the house that's been lost since then. Like all of this stuff that that would definitely foster um, a desire to understand Shakespeare as a man Mm -hmm. and the historical context in which he lived. And then the pushback to that, which is like Shakespeare doesn't exist. It's just the text. And then you got this middle ground kind of where it's like, well, we're not going to psychologize the plays, but we're also not going to divorce them from the context entirely. And it's a really interesting time period in that, you know, it's the basis of all literary criticism that comes after it, yeah. they kind of have their footing, it seems like. In, in one of these the, yeah. kind of areas. Like yeah. you can yeah. see the the fingerprints of, of deconstruction and yeah. and stuff in yeah. in all of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Definitely. um Yeah, and, and one of those so the, the the textual focus one is is part of the, the new criticism school yeah. of of thought that kind of uh, came up and this is like around the 30s to the 50s kind of thing. Yeah. And that was a reaction to uh, T.S. Eliot and those kind of uh, early modernist kind of thinkers who were like, let's turn the analysis of English literature into a science. And they wanted <laughs> right. to be very rational and, and structured and they wanted to have everything, um, you know, kind of holistically viewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in turn was actually a reaction to the yes. romantics and, and their focus on like, oh no, these authors must have been uh, very they must have lived great romantic lives. So let's and learn been divinely about inspired. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all just, you know, a series of reactions, of course. Um, but the new criticism stuff was, uh, again, very focused on the text itself. So yeah. it was kind of like the prelude to what we now call the death of the author, yes. where, uh, you don't talk about the author. You don't talk about his context. You don't talk about his life experience. No. Um, you're just focused on the text itself yeah. and you, you examine it as a whole, um, and anything you want to say about it has to be supported by the rest of the text and not, right. you can't say, oh, well, you wrote Hamlet because Hamlet died. You, right. The, the new criticism school would not yeah. allow that. So yeah. that was kind of the, the very uh, big focus. Um, and I've got a quote here. New criticism is very interested in form and how the content contributes to the form, such as language and structure. So that's okay. kind of a summary of, of how everything ties together in the new criticism school within that limited context of right. the text itself. So, okay. uh, Lindsay, I don't know if you'd agree, but I'd say that's still kind of, um, to an extent, the way we kind of teach students to analyze short stories and stuff like that, like in the yeah. high school and even university. I think it's, I mean, I can only speak to it from a um, secondary context, mm-hmm. not post-secondary. But, you know, there's there's a little bit of historical context. You have to provide that too. But, but it is a lot of, like, let's look at the text and let's mm-hmm. figure out, like... You know, but then again, you know, you're teaching kids who have never encountered some of these ideas yeah. before. So it's it there's you do need to provide more backgrounding and stuff for a lot, especially the older it gets. Um, so it I don't know if you can um, entirely focus just on the text. Yeah. yeah. Um, unless you're you're at a high scholarly level. Yeah. And there are still definitely people who who will just take the text and 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 of course the idea that what you bring to the text as a person with your own experiences can inform 
your understanding of that text. Yeah, which, which is the kind new of criticism a, would not have allowed. No, that, but, no, but modern. Mo- yeah, like encur- you, it's encouraged. It's yeah. totally encouraged yeah. that you can look at that and you can say, "Well, this means this to me," and then if you can support it, then it's valid. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a postmodern, yeah. very uh, wishy-washy almost way of it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is no it's science sure. to it at all. Yeah. It's it's all based on yeah. your own personal interpretations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is the new criticism. F.R. Levis, Elsie Knights, Derek Traversy, Robert Hellman. These are yeah. all people who uh, deal with that. And then you've got the new era of criticism. Different yeah. from new criticism. <laughs> so this is like Northrop Fry and well, uh, yeah. Stephen Greenblatt. And yeah, this stuff, is, right? I call this like the modern. So, like, okay. so, so okay. stuff that we you might engage with now. Uh, yeah. These are editors and people who've put together collected works. And, yeah. and I've just kind of grouped them all here. Um, the, at least the ones who don't fall within... We're going to get into like the feminists and the yeah. deconstructionists and stuff and the uh, region specific stuff. But like this is like your this is like the most modern contemporary yeah. uh, big name uh, kind of analyses of Shakespeare that exist yeah. today. And yeah, Northrop Prize is, is apparently a good example. Lindsay, how have I, you never read any Northrop Prize? This is what blew my mind. I'm like, he was Canadian. <laughs> like, oh I my had no god, idea. that's hilarious I had no idea. to me. Uh, I knew nothing about him. Wow. Uh, he wrote a book about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, no idea what it is. I've never again because I've never read anything. So we've got uh, like four books by Northrop Fry in our. Really? Yes. Oh. How did I take this and you didn't? I don't know. This is crazy. Well, there it is. Okay. Um, but yeah, apparently he had a lot to say about Shakespeare. I couldn't even find uh, a good summary of his books in our in our last. When, minute when we get but, into yeah. some of this stuff, I think a lot of this because these are um, living authors or authors from living memory. A lot of their stuff is behind paywalls, <laughs> and it's hard to get access to academic materials when you are not part of an <laughs> academic institution yeah. jstor will only take you so far and apparently there are two levels of jstor Aiden well was telling yes about. because um, i did find a couple things on jstor for yeah. this and it's like oh no you your peasant access does not count <laughs> you have to go through a university that actually has access to yeah. this article so it's just kind of disappointing but well, again but, yeah, you can always email the authors it's just yeah. we we did this at the 11th hour yeah. and so there's this is what you're getting yeah um yeah so i mean another uh big name that has come up a lot apparently this was uh jen not jen not jen not um and uh he was a polish emigre Mm -hmm. actually who lived under stalin and then came to the states um but had a very kind of uh added that personal feel to it i mean i think one of the quotes i read about him was like he's the only shakespeare scholar who could realistically say oh yeah well i i go to bed at night worrying about whether the police will come and arrest me in the right. middle of the night. You know, like, yeah. he, had a, he had a very different experience from the most Western uh, yeah. things. So he brought that to the thing and and used that to explore different avenues of, of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, having a psychological aspect to it uh, for certain things and uh, bringing a dramaturgical... He was uh, he was focused mostly yeah. on, on the, the stage. So, uh, you know, bringing that dramatic... Uh, interpretation to mm-hmm. Shakespeare and stuff. So yeah, just another uh, of the many uh, scholars on this list. Another one, I think we've all actually heard this one, Stephen Greenblatt. Mm-hmm. Very famous author. I think Stephen Greenblatt is the only author on this list um, that I have read yes. his entire book. I, I believe it's called it. Will in the World. Yes. Will in the World, um, which is, it's, it's actually kind of funny because um, he openly admits that we don't we know nothing about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so a lot of this stuff is speculative but then he in like the next breath he's like but this you can imagine that this is what happened (laughs) like Shakespeare must have watched these traveling plays as a five year old with his father Uh, you can imagine him standing there watching like (laughs) it's it's a very I loved the book I thought it was really great Um, but it, it suffers from the same things that everybody suffers from when they try and fit um, an, an interpretation of Shakespeare to the life and times of the man himself. Yeah, yeah. And there just isn't enough yeah, there yeah, to yeah. do that. Yeah. So it, it, it struggles with that. But, um, but still, it's, it's a highly engaging read. And, and it does have that... Um, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of research that goes into yeah. like, that Stephen Greenblatt has done. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think he, he's... Uh, the head editor on one of the collected works, like one of yeah. the major, I think, is the Arden, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I Folger. think. No, not Folger. It's not Folger. No, it's but maybe he, someone else, but yeah. He, yeah, and, Norton, and so maybe. I think it might be. It's the Norton, Norton. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And um, uh, putting the plays in in their appropriate context obviously is yeah. an important job for anybody who's going to be collecting in in any kind of academic sense, collecting the works of Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, so a good place to go for a new historicist. Yeah, kind of approach. Yeah. Um, speaking of collected ones, I didn't put it on here, but we do have to mention David, David Bevington. David Bevington. You love Bevington. I love Bevington. He just died a couple years ago. And yeah. Uh, yeah, he was actually the first one who soloed most yeah. other collected works. Uh, a couple people edited yeah. them. His, his version was just Bevington. Wow. So uh, he did all the plays, all the poems. He did everything. So, yeah. I mean, that version that we have is is quite, quite a testament the to one dude. 400-pound book. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a big deal, literally. When you do it all by yourself, your book can weigh whatever you want, <laughs> That's right? That's true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't I couldn't find a whole lot about uh, the kind of overview he brought, but he was, he was a very well-respected mm-hmm. uh, Shakespeare scholar. Um, there's a James Shapiro kind of falls in that same thing. He's a yeah. bit more populist. Um, he wrote a book. I just love this. Uh, it's called Shakespeare in a Divided America. <laughs> it's one of those things okay. where it's like, let's grab Shakespeare and apply it to the zeitgeist. I yeah. think that's, you know, it's, it's a very pop kind of psychology, pop yeah, sociology yeah, type yeah. of reading. But I think it's, I think it's useful when, uh, you know, well-trained academics do try and do that because it, it does kind of like even if it seems kind of silly and there's probably not a whole ton of substance there maybe yeah. it is it there is a nugget of of something valuable there. i guess and i i think it it bothers me a tiny bit because it it smacks of like um bandwagon jumping like i'm just gonna try and make money off of whatever like yeah. america's divided and i'm a shakespeare scholar so i'm Therefore, going to write about yeah right um yeah. which I, i'm not a super fan of but i guess in in terms of it's it, it's interesting that nobody does that with dickens nobody does that with bronte no. nobody does that with yeah. anybody else well and, and i think a lot of it's just because again shakespeare sells yes people love to say oh yeah shakespeare he's the one yeah. everybody's heard of yeah uh, i can i can pick up his book i read that play in high school right so i can i can jump in and read this book too and, right. and continue so i think it i think a lot of it is just the fact that shakespeare has yeah. this cultural cachet still but there's Absolutely. also there's also some uh, socialist materialist yeah uh, ideas. Yeah, there's that come quite a up. few of those. I got Alan Sinfield. Yeah, here. he was the one I, I identified mm-hmm. most strongly, uh, and he was also uh, he was gay, and he uh, so he brought a lot of gender and sexuality yeah. kind of thing, queer readings to the text and stuff. So yeah. it was very uh, you know that was that was new, uh, and mm-hmm. it kind of happened a lot through the 80s. Yeah, uh, his work started off as being. 
not at all gay. And then, you know, gradually he added more and more uh, queer topics to the list. And that was something that came out in the 80s and stuff like that. So that's that's uh, part of the expansion of Shakespeare readings. And I think that will lead nicely into the next one, Lindsay. Yeah. Which is uh, feminism and feminist Well, a readings. feminist a feminist, feminist and gender study approach. Yeah, which, um, I mean, we... I, Lindsay, I don't know if it's fair to say, but I'd say we bring a bit of a feminist approach. To, yeah, I mean, I think it's I, it's something we both are are interested in, and so it's. I think this would be probably one of the schools of thought that I would most closely align myself with. I don't know about you, yeah. um, but it's definitely um, it's a useful lens through which to look at it, even if you you know nobody is saying Shakespeare was a feminist, but you can look at feminist ideas through the patriarchal lens that Shakespeare was Mm -hmm. writing in and living in and you know um and kind of yeah you can kind of see where where those issues lie Mm -hmm. in the context of the world that Shakespeare inhabited and that's really where these um uh where the feminist theorists kind of come in they look at um a world that's dominated by men mm-hmm. and th- how the women and they're not there aren't a lot of women so it's easy to kind of pick the ones you want to focus on Miranda in The Tempest or um, Kate in Ka- uh, Katerina in The Taming of the Shrew or whatever and really focus on how they use their power and how they um, inhabit the male the, spaces the male space and, yeah. That, yeah. that they live in yeah. and so that's um that's kind of the the main thrust of what most of these feminist scholars and um, critics are looking at. Yeah. The lens through which they're looking at Shakespeare. Yeah. So just a, f- a few names, uh, and we we should mention this. Uh, we got the the high level overview for this from a Encyclopedia Britannica website. Uh, yeah. So I mean, of course, they can continue contributing. Uh, yeah, they've overcome Wikipedia as a great website. Um, but you know, but they, they had a, a list of some uh, feminist writers mm-hmm. on this. Uh, Linda Booz, uh, Lisa Jardine, Jean Harwood, Karen Newman, Carol Neely, Madeline Springnether, which, amazing name, uh, and Bruce R. Smith and Valerie Trobe, which Valerie Trobe, I feel like I may have read some of her stuff actually in university because I remember we had to do... Um, no, we didn't have to do, but we there was an option to do uh, like a feminist course or a post-colonial course, something yeah. like that. And I think we both wound up taking the, the feminism yeah. uh, one, and I feel like her name's really, really familiar. Yeah, so. and, and Linda Booz as well is um, familiar to me, uh, but I don't think it was in a Shakespeare context. Yeah, it was yeah. just I in think, a feminist yeah, theory context. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the interesting things that um, that came up in my research in the Britannica article um, that I just want to highlight um the uh the feminist reading of Romeo and Juliet that I never would have imagined but that um the idea that sh- that Romeo succumbs to peer pressure to kill mm. Tybalt mm. and that that is well he does well of course and yeah. and that that is a um he has a choice he can either go guns blazing and succumb to that peer pressure in that male dominated mm-hmm. way or he can live with love <laughs> and, and understanding yeah. and he chose violence <laughs> but but he has just come from his marriage bed and then going into mm. this and i just i that's the kind of thing that um like a feminist reading of of shakespeare 
allows you to kind of approach. Yeah. That, that scene, other yeah, yeah, yeah. other yeah. readings necessarily don't necessarily do like you never would think about shakes or, or about peer pressure in this sense being male coded I guess mm-hmm. but it is yeah when you read it it oh, kind it makes sense yeah. and then you're like yeah okay so you know if he had chosen love instead of violence you know the play would have ended very differently yeah. if it it's kind of um, uh, bringing a f- the female. In the bend, in the binary here, I guess yeah. it, bringing that female energy um, would have resulted in a it wouldn't be a tragedy. Yeah, no, no, it's absolutely that's that's a really good point. It is for all, all I have. He has eaten me out of house and home. Finally, on our list of contemporary, uh, I'd say English language canon yeah. uh things are the deconstructionists <laughs> gotta uh, love the deconstructionists of course they well i mean and it's it's interesting you you wrote most of the notes on this I one did. and you said that the desire to deconstruct shakespeare uh in like the derrida foucault kind of tradition uh started in the 70s and 80s but then it never really got off the ground yep the quote that that i got from um an article that will link the impact that the philosophy of Jacques Derrida had on Shakespeare criticism is comparable to the impact a round of fireworks has on the night sky. Explosive, dramatic, even awe-inspiring, but ultimately ephemeral. And that's what, <laughs> what I noticed and what other people have noticed. Obviously, I didn't come up with this. Um, that uh, there was this flash of like everybody was deconstructing everything. everything yeah. And it even existed like when we started university, it was very... Yeah. It was oh, yeah. still in vogue, kind of. Yeah. A lot of this shit was like heavily, heavily leaning towards a deconstructionist um, viewpoint. Yeah. Um, which really, deconstruction says that you cannot, language and words do not have meaning. like a, a, a definable meaning. It's all social. Yeah. yeah. So you have to deconstruct it and you have to get to the essential meaning behind the text if you can. Um, which is so ironic because the deconstructionists couldn't construct a sentence that had meaning <laughs> to save their lives. And I, I, I have nightmares still about reading some of these. You know, Derrida, you cannot sum up Derrida in, in a sentence. No, it was, I mean, that was kind of the point of it. I guess it was, it was kind of the point. Where but it's the- like, it's like, dude, seriously. <laughs> Could you not write a primer at least for like the dumb right? like in the room? Yeah. But, um, but this idea was very, very influential in the 70s and 80s and somewhat into the 90s. And it started kind of gently with this, like, we're going to, we're going to kind of, you know, deconstruct in the sense that we're going to undo the things that, that Shakespeare is doing to try and tease out some meaning. And it, and it develops through the 80s into let's blow this fucker up yeah. and let's just completely bring it all down and deconstruct it completely. Like it was a destructive yeah. way of looking at mm-hmm. at um, at things. And, and I think the problem, or at least the way I'm looking at it is that like Derrida and Foucault, a lot of this is very philosophical mm-hmm. as a phil- as a philosophy. It works as a literary theory. It doesn't. And I, I think yeah. that's something that, that deconstruction struggled with and why it didn't catch on and why, you know, by the early two thousands, even by the late nineties, yeah. nobody's really talking about it. There was no school of, Shakespeare deconstructionism that ever emerged despite all of this push to try and make it happen. I think to an extent the 
the things that could be deconstructed already were. I think like what we've talked about all through this whole thing is to various degrees of pulling apart aspects of the plays and the works and the man and the history and all these elements are being looked at from different angles and by different people in different times and they're already doing that deconstruction as much as possible because you know you can look at just the the text of Shakespeare you can look at just the play of Shakespeare as performed in 1758 by this company in in you know Virginia (laughs) you know like like there there's there's so many ways of looking at Shakespeare already that the the work of taking it apart is already kind of well been done. done and I yes to a certain extent I think that kind of deconstruction is useful yeah you know in a sense but what like the the kind of deconstruction that they were hoping to do was like busting it down to like pictograms like like making no, no, it just I, yeah, like yeah. so so. There, there is still the, some use yeah. for that. I mean, when you when you start to deconstruct the ideas that underpin, like for example, um, Kathleen McCluskey's feminist deconstruction, the example of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, is uh, deconstructs the idea of uh, the patriarchy, the underpinnings of the patriarchy, mm-hmm. and how like that wasn't something that people were really interested in doing yet. Yeah. So there's there's some use for that, and I think we do that on our podcast a little bit and i think that's something that has lingered but as a whole it's not like yeah we've I, taken apart every shakespearean word and you know like it, it's yeah well i think it's just like i think the natural instinct and this is why maybe why deconstructionism hasn't <laughs> blossomed into a into a movement that's go, that goes beyond academia mm-hmm. is that the natural uh, instinct is to reconstruct it back into something that makes sense for people. Well, I mean, to take it apart and to just say, like, to be or not to be, let's look at that yeah, for 6,000 yeah. words and take it apart so that uh, there is no being. Yeah, uh, You know, right. you bring Sartre or whoever into it. I mean, like, there you can you can do that. Yes. But at the is end it, of the it's day... It's not going to be as interesting as, as... As saying, okay, well, yes, there, there is a philological... <laughs> interesting point to the phrasing of to be or not to be that is the question uh but then and there's also a performative question about that like you can access it from many angles but Mm -hmm. you have to kind of pick an angle and that's what like even the example you brought up is it's a feminist reading it's a it is basically just a feminist uh reconstruction of some aspect of that right and (coughs) i feel like deconstructionism as as a tool to get to the bare roots of something is is very useful and it's it's a skill that i think they did teach us in university we did have a lot of profs who grew up in the 80s who were you know getting their 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 feet under them in that time and that was the vogue so i feel like it's useful but i i uh yeah it's one of those ones that i really struggle to like find a use for and I feel like Shakespeare scholarship kind of sums up why. Does that has I have I totally overreached? Am I talking bullshit now? I don't know. I kind of tuned you out a little bit there. That's um, good. Just like a good deconstructionist <laughs> word. Well, no, I, I no, 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 I, no, no, no. Just leave it at that. That's that's fine. <laughs> Once more into the breach, dear friends. Once more, I'll close the wall up with our English dead. So. 
going from specific schools of thought to broader um, regional areas of thought, we thought it might be interesting to just kind of briefly touch on how Shakespeare has been viewed and how um, Shakespearean scholarship specifically has been approached from various areas in the world. And the areas we kind of, um, that I found most interesting were to talk about African um, Shakespearean scholarship, Asian scholarship, South American, from a South American landscape, um, the indigenous perspective. And we've kind of touched a little bit on on like the broader European perspective and, and any kind of research I did into like European Shakespeare scholarship was was kind of... Yeah, it's well, it's regional. It's like it's very regional. What is yeah. Shakespeare in Czech Republic? What is Shakespeare exactly. in Slovenia? Like, like it's exactly. it's very. So I think it might tie closer well, in with things like the the political movements of the time. You'll have a, a Marxist or a communist or a Soviet bloc well, idea. And, of, and Europe was always like Knotts yeah. or whoever his name was, and all these other they yeah. you know Foucault's French like they, they they do connect to the larger European yeah. uh, you know schools of thought. Like they they do. Yeah. You made fun of it, but there is a there was a pan European school of thought even in the nineteenth century, and it did blossom throughout the twentieth yeah. in particular. But um, so more of like a post colonial yes. viewpoint is more interesting. Yeah. So like Africa is a good example. Like yeah. you, you mentioned, uh, it was translated into Arabic, which is funny because yeah, <laughs> the Arabic Africa divide is always interesting. Well, was it was it was done in Egypt? Yes. So an Arabic speaking country. Yeah. Um, but then the other play that I found um, that really blew my mind i i i don't i couldn't find where it was i think it was in the early 2000s maybe 2003 2005 something like that but i could be wrong um which was in south africa and recast macbeth um as like a fractured african national congress um interpretation of the play with uh like nelson mandela as duncan and tabo mbeki as um macbeth and jacob zuma as Malcolm and mm-hmm. having these characters with like not in the language of Shakespeare but you know using quotes from Shakespeare and then mm-hmm. the the people would be like and and Shakespeare said that right like yeah. you know or, or okay. the witches were journalists in this production uh, okay. and like having that cool. again it, it's 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 looking at it as a an adaptation I don't know what I'm trying to say. The, the, I'm talking about an adaptation. I'm not talking about like a school of thought now. So it feels like we're off well, track right now, but we're not. I mean, it's it's kind of what um, Africa as a continent is influenced by so many different places. Like, you know, and South Africa being a former English slash Dutch yeah. colony is going to have much more of a, a traditional connection to Shakespeare than well yeah yeah you know angola or something yeah a Por- portuguese calling or so yeah i mean like yeah. i mean the whole uh post-colonial aspect of yeah shakespeare in all these places is super important to consider right like i mean mm-hmm. it was not again like shakespeare was an indigenous uh or even nearby you know it's not like in germany like where they just oh yeah shakespeare yeah, yeah. yeah he's close we recognize him as yeah. one of our own right mm-hmm. this is something that was foisted on a people and yeah. uh you know it, for the people who live there and grew up under a colonial system it has way more complicated factors than totally. than anywhere else any of the ones we've talked about so far yeah. where um you know it, it it's kind of bereft of or separated from the politics that have gone on around yeah. how it comes to the it's people, a luxury right? to be able to do that in yeah. in africa in asia in um certain areas of latin america it doesn't happen that way it's well, it's very much tied into 
the yeah. history of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it really interesting. There was a, I can't remember the exact date, but it was, it might have been 1607, very early. And I can't even, I don't even know if this is true or if this is apocryphal or if this is just a made up story. Or whatever, right? Yes, yeah. where there was a, a ship that was, the crew put on, I think it was Richard II. I can't remember the other play, but off the coast of Africa. Yeah. Somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. And put on these these plays that they remembered seeing maybe 10 years ago in London or whatever. Yeah. Um, were they putting this on for, you know, did, did, was there where whichever African nation was on, like they were off the coast of, did they watch this? Did yeah, they yeah. see it? Was this their first introduction? It's pretty early when you think about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a long history of of influence, mm-hmm. but it's a complicated one. And yeah. I think the fact that you have, you know, South Africa in a post-apartheid uh, tradition, I guess, recasting um, a politically fractious play like Macbeth in with these powerful. Um, political leaders of the day uh and like yeah mandela being you know if i I, that's why i think it was early 21st century because you know mandela playing duncan is like the old guard and then becky coming in and you know murdering him is like there's a powerful significance to that and so that's yeah yeah no it's it's true and i i i just to like reinforce one point is like uh we talk about Okay, well, actually, I have two points. But the first one to, like, we're talking about Africa as a region. But, I mean, it is, like, there's how many different languages and cultures and everything in in Africa. It's hugely diverse and everything. Um, Like, uh, I, uh, there's the book uh, Decolonizing the Mind. I'm not even going to try and pronounce uh, the author's name. But he was a huge, uh, he was Kenyan. And he had uh, a really interesting uh, history of, of, you know, being taught English uh, literature and English works and mm-hmm. Shakespeare and then contrasting that with the his uh, his experiences in history and the, right. of the local culture and how they put on performances and stuff. And it's just a totally different school of thought. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, colonization cross... Mm-hmm. Uh, crossover and stuff like that is is really interesting to consider and it ties into my second point which is that uh, there is a really great podcast series if you like Shakespeare podcasts and you have yes. not yet found uh, the Folger Shakespeare Unlimited podcast yeah. series uh, do check that out uh, we will link to uh, their their episode on uh, African mm-hmm. Shakespeare connections and stuff um, it's absolutely great um, and yeah, they, they dig into it a bit more, uh, mm-hmm. with a bit more detail and with more knowledgeable people than us, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's useful too. But um, yeah, so let's move on to Asia quickly. Yeah, I mean, Asia, there, the problem that I had when I was doing my research on Asia is that a lot of the articles are written in languages I do not speak <laughs> or read. Um, but there is an Asian Shakespeare Association. Yeah. Um, and it's mostly dominated by Indian Ah. scholars um i think their first conference more than half of the presenters were indian Mm -hmm. and that should surprise absolutely no no one based on the colonial history in india Mm -hmm. and i think that's again tying back in with what we were talking about in africa i i would imagine that the countries that have the closest ties to england Mm -hmm. are going to have the closest ties to shakespeare and you're going to see a lot more of that um uh coming out in the dramatic traditions Mm -hmm. of those 
of those nations. Yeah, yeah. So they they did talk a little bit more again focusing on adaptations, the way that um, various Asian national dramatic traditions can mm. be incorporated Shakespeare can be incorporated into those like shadow theater for example how do you mm-hmm. do Shakespeare as that you know we've when you when you talk about great um, uh, Shakespearean adaptations you can't with without talking about um, Kurosawa Kurosawa yeah, right yeah. it's like and that is pure Japanese tradition right mm-hmm. in in the ideas that you know of samurai and and the, that adaptation and then kabuki theater a little bit in mm. some of them um so that is really the focus of of a lot of what i found was mm-hmm. how to how shakespeare has um i guess gained a foothold in mm. certain asian cultural uh traditions mm-hmm. um and it would be interesting, I think, to to find translations that I could, you know, to, to actually read these um, so that I could look at how successful various different traditions are at interpreting Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, because it seems like Shakespeare does fit in everywhere. Like, you can do it as puppetry. You can do it as... Uh, Shadow theater, well, you can and, do it in in mime. Well, and it's always interesting from the academic point of view right. to like uh, see how it's adapted, like what yes. changes, what stays the same, what what moves. We talked about it with Rand when we yep. did Lear, right? Like it's it's not it's never a one for one. They they you can't just take the the language no. uh, and divorce it from the story and then just move the story over permanently because it's going to change, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's always interesting what what gets changed into what to make it work for the uh, cultural uh, history and, and impetus behind the storytelling techniques that are there. Uh, just again, to plug Shakespeare Unlimited. Um, I remember I listened to uh, one they did on, on Shakespeare in China. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast that um, the word love often gets changed to filial, yeah. the word for filial piety. Yes. So it's, it, it changes the structure of it. And yeah. even if you do do more or less straight literal adaptations, it, it kind of, um, it can't help but be tweaked into this different well, thing. Right? And then to lead into the South American, Latin mm-hmm. American um, uh, region that we were going to yeah, talk yeah. about, um, this quote about specifically they were talking about the, the um, translations in South America, but mm-hmm. there's this desire here I'm quoting, to be included and represented by a quote-unquote sublime language without marring its original quote-unquote purity. Um, but it's also a survival instinct to appropriate this alien mm-hmm. linguistic system into mm-hmm. your translation, which yeah. is, you know, translating Shakespeare is is so tricky in that way. Um, and neither one of us is fluent enough in any other language to be able to uh, comment on this. Yeah. But it seems like that is a central concern for all of the nations we've or all of the regions that we've talked about so far that how do you translate without losing the essence of what you're translating but also without um losing the what's great about the language you're translating it Mm. into right and so um the example you gave about the word for love is is perfect or um you know uh Trying, trying to keep the the metrical 
Um, oh yeah. Right, which yeah. some people have tried to do, yeah. right? And it's, well, it's yeah. it would be impossible in a, in a language like German, for example, yeah, yeah. right, yes. to keep the metrical yeah. foot, you know, structure yeah. and everything yeah. together. Yeah. It would just not work. So, um, so choices have to be made, though, in that case. And so that what remains is the interesting part. Like, mm-hmm. what do each of these cultures and and uh, dramatic traditions? keep mm-hmm. and what is lost i think you know yeah it's very makes it yeah. really interesting yeah it's it's the it's the the key to the whole um process of translation yeah, yeah, yeah you have yeah. to make those decisions absolutely um so in south america specifically it it appears that it's um brazil mexico and argentina are the three nations that have the biggest um, contributions to South American or Central American Shakespeare scholarship, mm-hmm. and there are other countries that have n- almost nothing, yeah. which is interesting in and of itself that some countries have more than others. Um, well, I mean, they're the biggest, three biggest they're countries. They're the three biggest in, countries, in and, America, yeah. and they all have significant ties to the English-speaking world in, in various forms. Various yeah. forms. Yeah. Um, so it's not that surprising, but it, it, you know, it, it maybe proves that Shakespeare isn't as universal as maybe we'd like to think. You know, it's not like today we can't be connected. Paraguay, I'm sure <laughs> there's there are people there who are doing things like this. It's just not as um, widespread, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, so there's this this really interesting idea in um, South America. The the word that they use is mestizo, and I know that um, like mixed. It meaning people of mixed heritage, and I know that that word has some negative connotations. Well, it has weight, and it <laughs> definitely it has way, some yeah. weight too. Yeah. But the idea that Shakespeare was writing for a mixed crowd, mm. in terms of class, is something that Latin America, South America, Central America has all they've all really glommed onto that. It mm. seems like this is a pretty common thread in what I was able to find anyway. Mm. Um, so that. That idea is really popular. The idea of um, Shakespeare's challenging of colonial traditions, but also upholding those colonial traditions, mm-hmm. um, especially in some of the later plays, um, is, is again, something that heavily colonized nations have, have glommed onto. Um, and then I found it really interesting that Shakespeare may, <laughs> you could almost call him the godfather of the modern Brazilian novel. Um, wow. <laughs> which really, yeah, I mean, th- that, those are my words there. I did not read those anywhere else. Oh, okay. So maybe well, I'm, I'm not making it up. You're making it up. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to pronounce this author's name incorrectly, but, uh, Machado de Assi. Okay. Uh, the greatest Brazilian, modern Brazilian, uh, novelist was so heavily influenced. He, he, he translated Victor Hugo's. Oh, I don't remember which novel it was, but one of Victor Hugo's novels that was serialized in France. France yeah. um, before it was translated or printed anywhere else, he managed to get his hands on a copy of the serialized novel mm-hmm. and translated it into Brazilian. Yeah. Um, bef- like so, and uh, Victor Hugo hugely influenced by Shakespeare, and in doing so, he kind of incorporated a lot of Shakespearean through Victor Hugo ideas into his own writing writing. to make a new, almost 
Brazilian form to the novel. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And the influence there, probably, you know, Brazil being the most populous country uh, in, right? In yes. South America. Yeah. In South America. Um, and with this, again, tradition stemming from one of its great modern novelists, I think that has to have some kind of influence. There was also a really interesting um, paper. I didn't get to read the paper. It was in a book that I couldn't find, but um, I believe her name was uh, uh, Philippa... Philippa Shepherd. 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 Philippa Shepherd. I'm looking at the notes. <laughs> Thank you. Philippa Shepherd, who wrote about the uh, Boslerman, Romeo plus Juliet, mm. and how it dealt with like contrasting and comparing the anxieties of Elizabethan audiences towards um, Spain and Italy and how like anti-Spanish, anti-Italian feelings were part of the... Uh, you have to consider that in, as a context for people to... Watching Romeo and Juliet, mm. for example, at yep. the time that it was being produced. Contrasting that with Bos Lerman's production... Filmed in Mexico, kind of set in this barrio, this U.S. barrio kind of uh, okay. border town, you know, where there's a lot of anti-Mexican yes, sentiment, of course, yeah. okay. and how that plays into it, and how um, like the costume design and the production design um, is very flamboyant in the way that um, those border towns have, you, you know, like that that whole idea that. Mm. Um, that you could find that kind of parallel yeah, yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. Countryman. Ah! Hand me your ears! I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. So last we wanted to touch on uh, indigenous, uh, in particular North America, uh, yes. indigenous uh, work with Shakespeare. And uh, the work of one woman in particular, uh, Madeline Sayette was the name that yes. continued coming up the more and yes. more we researched. Uh, so she's a member of the Mohegan tribe, mm-hmm. uh, which is based in Connecticut mm-hmm. uh, this these days. Uh, and it is, and she's done a bunch of work uh, adapting yeah. uh, Shakespeare plays with uh, indigenous, indigenous uh, just an indigenous influence. It's it's uh, it's imbued with a different kind of spirit. She wrote a the approach. the article that I read was. Um, I don't remember where it was, but uh, she wrote about her interpretation of Winter's Tale mm. and how imbuing it with an environmentalist bent, mm. which is also very heavily influenced or a heavy influence in indigenous yep. cultures, um, having um, most of the cast be female, even when they're traditionally male characters, um, gives a um, matrilineal, almost maternal mm. Uh, vibe to yeah, it, yeah. which is again very indigenous. Yep. Um, this focus on uh, the continuity of generations, mm. again, yeah, yeah, which is very Shakespearean, yes, but also, yeah, right, especially in the yeah. romances. Yep. Um, yeah, all of that kind of comes together in a way that, like, like having not seen an indigenous, we were talking about this before. It's like, yeah. how cool would that be? And now this production was. Um, in 2016, I think, was put on in, in New York City. Yeah. Um, how cool would that be to see that? And, and like, that kind of an interpretation of um, of Shakespeare through an indigenous lens. Yeah. 
of course, this is North American. Uh, I would love yeah, to find yeah, out yeah. more about like Australian or, um, you know, a Maori kind of yeah, you know, take on it Japanese indigenous, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, but, well, and, and as I realized in this, the, this whole worldwide tour is less about the academic <laughs> interpretation, but more about the, uh, the adaptation of, and, uh, working with Shakespeare yes. within that context, but yeah. it is kind of usually, uh, within an academic, um, there's an well, academic yeah, end to it. Yeah, right? exactly. And so reading from her and, and kind of, you know, it was like a New York Times article or something. So it's not like it was in an academic journal, but there's a lot of thought that goes into this stuff. When you're when you're trying to figure out how to adapt Shakespeare for a local, uh, traditional, um, dramatic tradition, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to put a lot of thought into how, it's, how you're going to make it work for the audience that you have. And so um, even if it's not, you know quote-unquote high academic and you're not peer-reviewed in this journal or that um it still is a scholarly pursuit mm-hmm. right you can't deny that well yeah i mean like i think the process of taking shakespeare yeah. outside of um outside of the ever tower is itself kind of a, <laughs> a kind of an academic experience because yeah. you can't really separate them and especially well, you can, when you can but well, it's it's I mean, but it's especially There's always that connotation. Yeah. And especially when uh, there are historical and political elements to yes. that process. Yeah. Um, and you have to account for all of that. It's mm-hmm. an incredibly intellectually taxing exercise. And like all of these areas that do it, um, whether it's India or uh, the in- indigenous North Americans or in Africa, like all these places that have dealt with various forms of English language colonialism yeah. to find something of value in Shakespeare and mm-hmm. to do something special with it is is itself a, an academic pursuit for sure. The one culture we didn't talk about is the Klingon culture, the original Klingon. You haven't read Shakespeare. You haven't seen Shakespeare until you've seen it performed yes. in the original. We'll come back to that when we uh, come back to uh, Star Trek VI, right. uh, The Undiscovered Country. Right. But until then, uh, we'll move on to... If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. Ancient bickerings. It is time. Uh, Lindsay, I have one for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is a different This is a different approach, okay? Which academic school do you think the other most closely aligns with oh, that we've dang. talked about so far. So you have to make a case for which one you think I subscribe to in our discussion of Shakespeare, and I have to talk about which one you have to, you would Well, ponder. you know, sometimes, Aiden, I, I love you, and we've There's been together for coming. a long yep. time. But? But <laughs> sometimes you are <laughs> incomprehensible. So I'm a deconstructionist. You're a deconstructionist. <laughs> That's what I would say. I think you challenge me in your use of language and the circuitous logic that you use to um, get your meaning across. Um, wow. I think that is that's where I would. When put we go right. to the divorce lawyers, they're gonna they're gonna have a hard time <laughs> deconstructing the reason for divorce. She called me a deconstructionist <laughs> on the record. It's not nice, but okay. Um, okay. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, well, no, I, don't, I, I, I don't argue I, with you. I think uh, <laughs> there are times when I definitely go down that approach um, of just talking shit out my ass uh, until you nod and say, yes, Aiden, that sounds great, <laughs> which is most of what <laughs> And I'm then convinced. I go burn a book by Michel Foucault. Yeah, well, as you should. Um, for you, Lindsay, I have to say, I, you know, 
not to not to jump right into the lion's mouth here, but I was gonna say feminist, but I don't think so. I think actually the thing you rely on the most, I find in our discussions, is um, the historical context. Yeah. I think you really like to move it back to well, in Shakespeare's day, right? And I you do. know this, and he was talking about this would have had this meaning. Yeah, yeah. I think that's as much as I protest that I don't do that. I do do that. <laughs> I do. Is there? Do you think there's a reason for that? Like, do you um, do you find it? Does it just like, does it always beg? Because when you do it, every time you bring it up, I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Because to me, personally, maybe as a post-constructualist, <laughs> I've just made that up, I'm sure. Uh, there, I, I always think to like, I like to go down my own train of thought and then uh, go and reroute back to something that is more grounded and right. you do that for me you, you will we'll be talking and i'll come up with oh well maybe this is the the thing about you know whatever and then you say yeah but in shakespeare's time he was just talking about dicks you know like mm. like you you do that really well of like bringing me back do you think that's why because you really enjoy are you you find kind of comfort in that in, in um, grounding it in in a way maybe maybe I I don't know. Sure. Let's go with that. That's that sounds like the reason. I don't think about it. Like it's not like it's something that I that I actively think about, which is probably why I was never a very good student because I don't really think about what I say before I say it. Um The secret's out. Yeah. Everybody knows. But, Give but us your B plus I, online, please. But I think it um maybe speaks to why Oh, I'm gonna get sappy. Why you and I maybe fit together so well? Because you do, you do tend to go, and you do the same thing. You go off on these wild tangents. I'm like, damn, that's that's a good idea. I just want to feel like I'm contributing something. I'm like, yeah, well, Shakespeare's just talking about dicks, and that's my contribution to the podcast. You bring the dicks to the podcast. Lindsay. That's that's, <laughs> that's a positive. That's the takeaway. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh my god. Well, this went off the rails really quick. I, w- I was going to say feminist for you, too, but I thought that would be the easy answer. So I was going really? for humor. You'd say feminist? Yeah. I mean, you know, that I, yeah. you're a feminist deconstruct. That's too easy. We need to bicker a little bit. I wanted to I wanted to jab you a little oh, bit. It there. hurts. I mean, honestly, there oh, are. I'm sorry. Oh, man, that that's going to that's going to haunt me. It's going to sting. Because like, what the fuck does it mean? Nobody knows. That's the point. Yeah. Nothing. It means nothing. There's no smart, meaning. But you sound smart. I guess. That sounds, that's me. That sounds like it's it not my alley. It means nothing, but you sound smart. <laughs> you should read some Northrop Fry, hun. Just, just saying. <laughs> so I can actually be smart? Okay. That's a good idea. Okay. You horse and curl. No, no. Thou stool for a witch. I do, do, thou sudden witted lord. Thou hast no more brain <laughs> than I have in my nose. Lynn's what's next on our podcast uh, list of episodes uh that was a speaking of not smart no go ahead uh Coriolanus is the next that we are doing um again not one that I am familiar with I don't think I've ever seen it performed no um never read it there was a will be interesting there was a film production that came out a couple years ago 2004 maybe okay maybe almost 20 years ago (laughs) um but yeah so uh we'll we'll probably be checking that one out if there's one what's our Uh, next topical episode next topic is shakespeare and religion okay i have no idea if coriolanus is a religious play i don't know if we actually matched this one we probably didn't but i think it's it's going to be worthwhile and and we may i i may go off on my historical tangent and start talking about was shakespeare a secret catholic 
Yeah, um, and I'll be like speculating mm, like he Stephen doesn't even Greenblatt believe in does. God because he was busy deconstructing him. <laughs> so deconstructing God? Yeah, Shakespeare was obviously. Lindsay, have you not read the text? <laughs> Anyways, that's coming up in uh, the next few episodes. Uh, thank you for joining us for this one. Uh, this was fun, Lindsay. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, this brings me back we to our college days. Talked talked for a lot longer than I thought we would. So um, yeah, that. But yes, you're right. It did uh, college days yeah. when we fought about things and said words again you don't know when the fuck to shut no i don't you can find all our episodes on itunes spotify podbean youtube or wherever you get your podcast fix if you want to tell us what you think of shakespeare his plays poems or any of the topics we discuss we'd love to hear from you you can contact us on twitter that's at the bixpod on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.